I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com It's been almost two years since the UK first went into lockdown. Schools closed and parents all over the country, had to learn to teach. But as the months of homeschooling wore on, more and more children started slipping through the cracks. It's not as easy as saying, oh, what we need to do is provide everybody with a tablet and get them in on Saturdays and, and, and we'll fix it. It's far more complex. Rachel Pearson is a mother of five. And what's it like in terms of getting their homeschooling done? They're doing it as best they can, but I can't teach them. It's hard, isn't it? Because we're not trained teachers, are we? Yeah, because I don't understand any at work. I can't do it. Now that school routines have gone back to normal, it's time to take stock. What lasting impact has the pandemic had on the COVID generation? We know that there are about 100,000 so-called ghost or missing children who just haven't returned to school. Many, many people don't know where they are. So who are these ghost children? And how do we get them back into school? Really, it's about recognising what a tough time families have had and re-engaging with those supports. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the COVID generation. How the pandemic affected children. My name is Sean Griffiths and I'm the Education and Families Editor at the Sunday Times. Sean, it's been nearly two years now since the first lockdown. You've been looking at the effect it's had on children, their families, schools. I know you've spoken to some psychologists too as, as background for this. What are your main findings? What has the effect of these two years been? I think there have been a lot of effects for children. I think, you know, in some ways children have been the hardest hit by the pandemic. But I think one of the biggest effects that I've come across is it's just the number of children who are not going to school anymore. Um, the figures are quite, quite shocking, quite staggering. So, for instance, January the 20th this year, there were a, a record one million pupils in England. That's about one in eight of all school children who were not in school. Admittedly, some of them, like 415,000, were off because of COVID-related reasons. They were isolated or they were Hmm. sick. But that still leaves a huge number of children who were not off for COVID-related reasons. We have no idea whether they're in trouble, whether they're anxious and staying at home, whether they're out on the streets. No one really knows. And that is quite terrifying. 
The idea of ghost children is really haunting. Do we have any sense of why people are staying away, why they're absent? I think there are different explanations. So the police have already warned that some of these children probably have been caught up in so-called county lines drug crime. They've been recruited by gangs and they haven't returned to school as a result. Vulnerable children are no longer in school and less visible to social workers. Home stress from lockdown and mental health challenges could all drive them into the wrong hands. Others, I think, are just very anxious. And this is what psychologists are saying. They've been made anxious by the pandemic. They're anxious about going back into school, into large groups of people in big secondary schools, for instance. They're anxious about whether they will catch COVID. They're anxious about whether they'll pass it to their parents or their grandparents. Some of them, their parents say, have just got out of the habit of going to school after two years of stop and start schooling, especially some teenagers. They've just lost that routine, that getting up in the morning, packing your bag, going to school, coming home. Mm. And they're finding it very difficult to re-establish it. I want to ask you more about that in a moment. It's such a, a serious issue. But for the people who are going back to school, how have they been affected? Are, are there sort of academic standards suffering? What have you found? Yes. So one of the big things that head teachers are reporting is that actually Many children have fallen very, very far behind in their education during the pandemic. We know that thousands of children lost months of lessons when the schools were closed. It's a differential effect, of course, because some of the private schools were very good at delivering online lessons, even during lockdowns, and children had pretty much a full timetable. They'd get up in the morning at nine o'clock, sit on their laptop until four o'clock. So it wasn't very different to being at school. But, you know, in some of the poorer areas where families didn't have their own laptops at home, maybe families didn't have broadband, where the schools were slow to get to grips with remote learning, those children really are very, very badly behind. One of the things that's going to emerge when we come out of the pandemic is that probably social mobility will have been badly dented. The poorest children were furthest behind anyway. And it's just that that gap will have got bigger. So if you're in a private school and you've got access to a great laptop, your family is very supportive, there's lots of books at home, you've got great Wi-Fi, then when schools were closed in the pandemic, Those private schools and some of the best state schools could deliver very good virtual lessons to children at home. I mean, there was a huge drive at one point in the pandemic to actually give laptops to kids. Businesses were donating them. Mm -hmm. Celebrities were fundraising for them. Mail force are raising money to get computers and connectivity to Britain's most disadvantaged kids. They need this so urgently. And if we act now... If we act now... We can get them to the kids who need them the most. These kids were at home and they just, they were trying to do lessons on their mobile phones. Their parents were getting really, really worried because their broadband bills were racking up. So those kinds of issues have really affected some of our poorest families. And we will see that in GCSE results, in A-level results, in SATs results in the coming couple of years. And Sean, one of the great metrics for working out how people are progressing academically is, is reading age. And you found some really startling figures on that. Tell us about that. We've always had a problem with reading. For the last few years, we've had about one in five 11-year-olds leave primary school unable to read properly. They go into secondary school and they can't really access the curriculum. Now, that figure is likely to have grown by about 300,000 during the pandemic. And that is a huge worry. And the government is, is extremely concerned about it. It's thinking about how it can address this literacy problem. Literacy and numeracy are the foundations 
of everything, ensuring that our children recover what they've lost during the pandemic is a moral imperative for this government. If you can't read properly at the age of 11, then, you know, you, you can't access any subject because you just don't understand what's being taught to you. So some secondary schools who are now seeing these children coming through this year, they are actually sending their teachers out to learn how to teach children to read because this is not a skill that secondary school teachers have. They're having to do remedial reading with their 11-year-olds and they're actually having to take some of them and almost teach them from scratch, from those first principles of sounding out letters and putting letters together to make words. That's shocking at the age of 11. And Sean, on the, the pupils who aren't making it back at all, the, these ghost children, tell me a bit about some of the families you've spoken to and some of the reasons behind why their children are absent. I worked with a charity called Square Peg, which supports families whose children are having trouble going back to school. They put me in touch with a number of families. So, for instance, there was one family in Islington, well-off, middle-class family, five children. First three children had gone through a large, well-known Islington comprehensive school perfectly well. The fourth child, who's now about 14, Benedict, he was fine before the pandemic. But now, since September, he has not gone back to school. He sleeps all day. He gets up at night. And... When his mum comes in in the morning to say, Bendix, it's time to go to school, he says mm. no, and he rolls over and goes back to sleep. And she is at her wit's end. I mean, she has been threatened with penalty fines for not getting Benedict to school. But as she says, I can afford to pay the fine, but that is not going to get Benedict back to school. And she no. wants him in school more than anyone else, probably. I mean, it's so interesting you know, what's happened there, it's almost a behavioural thing. You know, we sometimes see it at the end of summer holidays where it's really hard to adapt to going back. But to have done that for two years. And and she says that before March 2020, before the pandemic started, he had 97% attendance. He was in the top set. Mm. He was Mr. Popular. He loved school. And now she's getting these letters saying his attendance is 2% and warning that, you know, she is facing sanctions if she doesn't get him to class. I know in your piece you sort of talked about a school nurse who who describes this as emotionally-based school avoidance. That's sort of a trait that they're seeing a lot now. I mean, is that what this is? Yeah, that is a term I hadn't actually heard until this year. It is almost a psychological condition. And I think what charities like Square Peg would say is, it's no use just fining these families. You know, you mm. fine them £60 per child if they don't attend school. And then if they don't pay the fine, they can end up in court and face bigger fines and even possibly face jail. That's not going to get these kids back to school, many of them. It may get some of them back to school. But what Square Peg and other charities like that say is that these children need support, they need help, they need mental health support. I know you've spoken to some psychologists too. What did they say? I mean, how do they describe this? Is it like a form of depression almost or anxiety? I think some of the families I've spoken to, definitely, children do seem to be exhibiting anxiety and depression. There was one child, he's 12 now, he went to his primary school absolutely fine, he's called Casper. He was due during the pandemic to transition into a secondary school, a big secondary school, Portsmouth Academy, and he hasn't been. So for two years, he hasn't been to school. And his mother says that he, he has become incredibly anxious during the pandemic. She's anxious too. Hello? Hi, is that April? Yes, it is. Yeah. It, it's Sean again at Sunday Times. Hi. I just wanted to check a couple of things quickly. 
So why is Casper still not going to school? I mean, now that, you know, things are safer, why now do you not want him to send him? What makes you think that it's safer now? Ah, okay, so you don't think it's safe now? Uh, It's not just that I don't think it's safe now. The data suggests that it's absolutely not safe now. It's gone in the opposite direction. They've taken the mitigations out of school at the same time as throwing them all in after Christmas. It's insane to suggest that schools are safe in comparison to what other countries are doing in their schools. So, like, for instance, Germany had HIPAA filters, Mm. air purification in their schools over a year ago. You know, we seem to be going in the opposite direction. It wasn't okay for adults to take it on the chin, but apparently it's fine for children too. She says that he's mildly autistic, he's got obsessed with the data about how many people are dying, how many people have got long COVID, some of his school friends have had long COVID, and he's just very anxious about going back. He point blank doesn't want to go back to school until he knows that it's safe. And and this is the thing, right, is because I've always said to the school, when it is safe... When you can show me that it's safe, I'll be quite happy to send him, you know, and I will reassure him. I'm not lying to my child and saying that it's safe. Difficulties understanding why, why the situation is not the same for children as what it has been for adults. She doesn't understand why schools are any different. And this is a school where a 15-year-old pupil did die of COVID a few days before she was due to receive her jab. It's thought that Georgia had COVID myocarditis, heart inflammation caused by the virus. Georgia died in hospital on Tuesday, four days after testing positive for COVID-19. Casper knows about this. This has added, according to his mother, to his anxiety. Hmm. I mean, you can see how that would be alarming. Mm. It sounds like his family are about to be taken to court over all this. So April, his mother, has been threatened with prosecution because she hasn't managed to ensure Casper's attendance at school for such a long period of time. The case was adjourned last time I talked to her, but it's due to come back to court. She is going to plead not guilty. She's going to argue that it's not her fault. There was a pandemic. He's got anxious. Mm. She didn't feel safe at various points sending him into school. There, There was some illness in the family. And she is going to argue that very strongly. And I don't know what the outcome will be. Portsmouth Academy, which must have referred that family to the council, which would then have decided whether to fine or to prosecute, is taking a very hard line. It gave me a statement saying, the school's highest priority is keeping students and staff at the school safe. Attendance at school is mandatory so that children can continue to receive an excellent education. And it's absolutely right that actions taken against parents who deny their children the right to be educated. Is there any kind of help being offered to people who are in that situation? I think it depends on your school and it probably depends on the state of the NHS in your area. There are long waiting lists for mental health services for children. Some schools are doing things like training up well-being counsellors. Other schools are doing things like giving families an alarm clock to wake their child up in the morning or calling them up, you know, a little wake-up phone call from school at eight o'clock direct to the child's mobile. And some schools are really trying to to bring in part-time attendance for children who are struggling to get back. So there's a school I talked to with a headteacher called Simon Kidwell who who has done exactly that. And he's done what actually many offices have done, which is have a sort of hybrid model of working. Children can, can come back in two or three days a week until they feel secure enough to step that up to a full week. 
Coming up, we hear from a child psychiatrist about the scale of the problem. But first, a message from a colleague. I'm Matt Chorley. I'm a columnist for The Times and presenter on Times Radio. And we try to cover all the biggest stories, bringing you politics without the boring bits. We can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. So subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A new report by the Children's Commissioner has highlighted the problem of children missing from the school system. Ghost children who've somehow fallen through the cracks. To understand what's happening and what we can do about it, we turned to an expert. My name's Jonathan Green. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Uh, I work clinically at uh, the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital in the Child Mental Health Department. And I'm also a professor at the University of Manchester where I do clinical research into early child development. Uh, So I've been very involved in clinical services and to some extent in research over the COVID period. So what impact did the COVID period, these last two difficult years have on school children? Of course, this period has had a profound impact on all of us. And uh, children, no exception, the age range of the child and their reactions to such an event like this really matters. So the age of the child when they go into what's being called a species event, you know, something that's affected all of us at the same time simultaneously, the age of the child and their level of understanding of the world around them and how things happen obviously make a big difference to how they reacted to such things. So if I take the younger children first, clearly their whole social world suddenly completely changed. And In our um, local community where I live, in the first lockdown, we did a community project where children of all ages did drawings. It was like a kind of art competition. And we collected a a wonderful array of, of children's paintings and drawings during that first lockdown. 
And those paintings and drawings were quite revealing. I, as a child psychiatrist, got such a wonderful insight into what the impact of the lockdown was on regular children. For the young ones, it was a, a complete focus back into the home. A lot of their drawings were about their little safe space at home, often their bedrooms at home, family events. And of course, the amount that they felt safe and comfortable at home was incredibly important in how well they adapted. The other aspect that was really important that came across in the paintings and drawings was the kind of narrative that they were hearing from the media, probably mainly from their families, from their parents, people they listened to about what on earth was going on. And, you know, like all of us, you need in a situation of uncertainty to have a narrative to, to understand. If that was the younger children, what about the older ones? How did adolescents cope with a pandemic? Of course, it was different. They have their own ability to make a narrative. And I think there the, the key things were the sense of social isolation, removal from peers. And then on the balancing of that, of course, the development of uh, the social media contact. So uh, huge online efforts of you know, online parties, the sort of things that we as adults ended up often doing as well. Aside from the age differences, there were some children who were more affected by the pandemic than others. I'd say there were three particular groups that have been impacted. The first is a, a group of children of all ages who are prone to social anxiety or anxiety and worries of all kinds. And we know about these children. They, they are in the community. We often work with them clinically. But this pandemic exacerbated a lot of those fears and anxieties and has caused a real legacy now as the pandemic, at least at the moment, is, is waning and people are back at school, etc. This social anxiety and the, and the hesitancy, the fear, the re re reluctance to get back into social life, school life, does account for some of the ongoing difficulties and the, the worries. In clinical terms, we can call them school-related anxieties, but this has hugely increased during the pandemic and, and it, 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 uh, it continues. A second group is children who have neurodevelopmental vulnerabilities. So these are children whose uh, perception of the world, their development, their um, understanding their minds, is perhaps more vulnerable than um, other kids. And thinking of children with neurodiversity, with autism, I think the invisible nature of the threat with COVID was a particular issue. So I had children that I worked with, with the fact that viruses would be spread on the wind, even if they were out in the safety of their garden, they'd be worried that there was, there was threat on the wind. So this kind of exaggerated anxiety based on really not being able to make sense of what was going on and the invisibility of things uh, made a huge difference and led to um, quite a number of children with, for instance, autism, uh, becoming obsessively worried and uh, reluctant to, to socialise and go out. For the children with neurodevelopmental vulnerabilities and indeed social anxiety in the older age groups, Initially, the first lockdown was a bit of a relief because they weren't having to go to school, which is often for many children quite stressful. They weren't having to engage in, in stressful social activity. 
And so initially, actually, paradoxically, the immediate mental health of these children um, actually increased during the first lockdown often. But, you know, as things wore on and the later lockdowns, that I, I would say that benefit um, reduced. And uh, then, of course, you've got the problem of re-engaging um, after the, the need for lockdown has, has gone. And then there were the children who have a difficult home life. Staying away from school took away the only form of sanctuary for many of them. One would say socially vulnerable, children for whom their home uh, isn't experienced as safe, children whom are living in really stressful conditions, whose parents are increasingly stressed. And we know many parents had an awful time during COVID, particularly losing jobs, financial hardship, the stress, the frustration. And all of those things, of course, um, naturally led in many families to hugely increased stress and parental difficulty and parental mental health problem. And that, of course, has impact on the kids. And so the sort of socially vulnerable children were a real concern and remain a real concern in terms of this group of children who we've always been concerned about, a group of children who are not at school, who are sort of lost to sight in a way, but there are lots more of them now, uh, that's for sure. So if those are broadly the main groups of children who are now staying away from education, even though lockdown is over, how do we get them back into school? The clinical approach is really first to understand what are the underlying dynamics behind often what look like similar presentations. So it's typical in our field that you you get a child who's doing apparently the same kind of thing, like being reluctant to attend school and leave the home. But the reasons for that in different children are hugely different. And it's really about understanding that because that really makes a difference to what one does. It has to be what we think of as a sort of team around the child approach. So that these child need, need help to get back into the routine of coming out, engaging with school, feeling again the benefits. And parents need help often letting them go because they're often anxious as well. So there's a, a sort of sense that the, the child has to cross the threshold back into the world again and be helped to do that by clinicians, professionals around. Schools to link into health professionals, to link in with parents, to make a, a kind of coordinated team around a child to help them back into the routine of school and often the thing is if you can get them back going again things get easier it's it's the threshold effect that's hard for the slightly older children cbt and other psychological therapies could be helpful to help them to reframe their narrative about the world again and then there are the socially vulnerable children the ones who have difficulties at home Perhaps the most worry of all, to be honest, because the family stress, the, the financial stress is going to be continuing. The, the stuff that may have happened within families in terms of stress, difficulty, perhaps violence, perhaps increased levels of danger for children in the home, that's not going to suddenly go away. Really, it's about recognising what a tough time families have had and re-engaging with those supports. And so I would say it's family support for those 
families, both financial from the government, it's been hugely important, but also psychological, social, to help them get back on their feet and become the good parents they almost always want to be. That's a big social task for us now after COVID as we come out and uh, re-engage. I mean, these are really complex issues. You know, there is no one solution that fits all. But is the government coming up with a strategy around all this? If the numbers are at 100,000 potential ghost children, are we just writing this off as a, a lost generation? Or is there actually a government strategy to try to bring these people back into the fold? I think the government's very aware of the problem. Nadim Sahawi, the education secretary, I think has come up with a range of possible strategies to try and tackle it. But all these strategies take time. And the problem is, it's now, it's urgent. If you don't get these children back to school quickly, they're never going to come back. At the moment, we have a postcode lottery when it comes to finding parents whose children are not attending school. The education secretary has published a consultation paper, which is looking at how do you and make that a more consistent approach across the country. I must say, I think it's going to veer towards more fines, not less fines, but it will be a set of rules that all councils will have to follow if children are not in school for a certain period of time. They will then need to be referred, I think, for for fines. And with these fines, you know, rather than any kind of psychological or therapeutic help, will there be some parents who end up just taking their children out of the school system? If you're a parent and you're being threatened with fines, prosecution, possible jail sentences, the easy thing to do for you is, oh my goodness, there's a loophole in the law. It allows me to homeschool my child. I can just withdraw from this horrible barrage of things that are coming my way. I'll say I'm homeschooling my child, withdrawing them from the state system, take your penalties and keep them. You can check on me once a year, and that is perfectly legal. And there is a rise in the number of home-educated children in this country. It's very likely there's going to be a further surge at the end of the pandemic. And the problem is that that's fine if you're, you know, a really committed parent who thinks they can teach eight GCSEs to your 14 or 15-year-old and, you know, you're doing a really good job. It's not really fine if you're only doing it to avoid fines and actually you've got a job and you haven't got time to teach your child, you know, a full curriculum and you don't have the expertise or the skill set either. And if there's one thing we learned in the pandemic, it's just how difficult homeschooling is. So... (laughs) If there's a rise in home-educated children for fear of the consequences of not getting your child to school, that is a very bad outcome, I think, for the child. These children need support. They need help. They need mental health support to get them back to school. They need psychologists working with them. They need people in school and the family working together. Maybe introducing them back to school on a part-time table. Maybe having a support worker in school. But different kind methods Mm. to try and get them back. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, the education editor for The Sunday Times, Sean Griffiths, and Professor Jonathan Green, Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Manchester University. You can read more of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Oliver Adamson, The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. We'll be back tomorrow with more on the situation in Ukraine. Thanks for listening. See you then.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.